Welcome to Stories from Retirement. You're about to listen to the bonus clip from episode number five, where you'll meet Todd, and he's going to take you through his career, his background, and his thoughts on the transition into retirement. So with that build up, I'd like to introduce everybody to Todd. I, I'd like to, you know, just ask you a broad question. You know, if you could, please tell us with a, an overview of yourself, you know, what, tell us about your, you know, your family and your career and, and how you got started and, and what it was like in work. Uh, so everybody has a context for, for who you are um, and what your life was like before you retired. Sure. First, thanks, Drew. Um, happy to be here. And uh, I tip my hat to uh, to George. If you haven't listened to that podcast, he's uh, a very interesting, thoughtful guy who I consider a uh, it's a blessing to call my friend. I so, agree. Um, and he introduced us. Uh, I listened to your other podcasts. I thought they were great. I thought there was some good uh, nuggets. So I'm going to kind of start by saying if I don't say the words for me enough, because I'll be talking about you know, what worked for me, but I think it's a retirement right. and our decisions are very, very individual. And so, uh, you know, what I've done, some things have worked, some things haven't, but, um, as I talk about things that have worked, I hope people consider that it may or may not work for them. Um, yeah. So, uh, a little bit about my background, um, my family, I, I say with pride, um, my father, um, my, my grandfather kind of came up through the coal mines up through Virginia into West Virginia, and then they settled in Western Pennsylvania. My father um, grew up on a dirt floor using an outhouse. Um, he was very bright and realized that he needed to, uh, I guess, pursue his intellect. So when he was 18, he ran up to Pittsburgh and enlisted at the end of World War II. Okay. And they recognized he was smart, so they made him a, uh, a technical track where he, um, I think it was teletypes. He learned like how to intercept and listen to Russia. Um, <laughs> after so he was like an intelligence then. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was more technical than intelligence, Drew, but okay. yeah. So he was up in Alaska, um, like in the middle of nowhere. Um, listening to what the Russians were saying at the end, listening of World to War II our allies at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Just like we're doing exactly. now, I suppose, right? With Snowden and Assange and all those people, we're doing the same damn thing, right? So, um, you know, God bless our government. There's, there's definitely not perfect, but um, I always think, boy, you know, they they helped my grandfather through the depression. Um, for my father's service, they said you can go to college um, on the GI Bill. So he went to Penn State and he, uh, he met my mother when he was working here in the Philadelphia area, which is kind of more or less home. But uh, he met my mother in the Conshohocken area, which is outside of Philadelphia. And um, she was a bit younger. She was going to Penn. And they University got of Pennsylvania? Correct. Yeah. 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 She wanted to be a school teacher. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was the, I was the last of four. Um, okay. I'm the baby as well. The babies have it <laughs> so tough. Don't we? It's just brutal for us babies. Oh, everybody <laughs> thinks we're spoiled, but you know what? We're, we're, we're fighting through the other three in my yeah. case for any, any level of attention. My, my siblings so, yeah, killed me for saying that, teacher. but yeah. 
Sorry. Yeah. My, my siblings would kill me for saying the babies have it easy or, but you know, but or hard, I should say. So yeah, my mother was a school teacher for 30 years. She really emphasized, um, education and, um, uh, was kind of a real go-getter. She, uh, she started a nursery school. While I was still like four years old. So my, my siblings always joked that I was the only kid in the family who had to repeat nursery school. Um, <laughs> As I, I went two years as my mother was a teacher. Um, my father was in the business world making ceramic brick that went on the inside of steel, steel kilns. So he kind of, okay. um, that was his area. He was a ceramic engineer by education at Penn State. And, you know, I, I kind of look at that as, uh, as just a lot of the background of my family. Um, it's a great background. So, he had moved out to, um, or we had moved out. I was born south of Gary, Indiana, um, in a small town. If you've ever seen, have you ever seen um, the show, um, A Christmas Story, that they play 24 on Christmas? Yeah. 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 That that was my childhood. That was, that was my childhood. Um, Indiana, just full of uh, good family people. He... Um, they decided to move back to Pennsylvania to be closer to family when I was nine. So we moved to the booming metropolis of Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Okay. Most known for making bologna. Okay. And he continued to work in a, uh, in a plant near Reading, Pennsylvania that made a ceramic brick. And my mother taught school. Um, There's a lot of educators so my in my family too. I, I just feel like that's such a noble profession. Um, such a difficult profession these days. I think it's much harder these days, but that's what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And I'm actually, uh, if we get to the end of, uh, of my babbling, I'm, oh, I'm doing actually great. just took a job as an adjunct professor. So I'm opening Did you up a really? new chapter. Okay. Yeah. So Good I've always enjoyed teaching. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my dad wanted me to go to Penn state. My mom wanted me to go to Penn. Um, I broke the tie. I went to, uh, Cornell. Um, I wanted to be an engineer. I thought electrical, that really was just not that interesting and way too hard for me. So I found a study called operations research mm -hmm. and industrial engineering, which was a lot of math. And I've always loved math. Um, and I just had a, a really great time at Cornell. It was very transformative. Um, if that's a word and, uh, transformative, there we go. Transformative. Yep. Yeah. Around, um, around junior year, a professor, I got, I was one of the only, um, well, I was the only student to get a co-op job actually in Ithaca, New York. There was a company that made industrial chains. And so that was kind of the start of my career. And it was, it was a great job for me because I thought I was interested in manufacturing, but I got to live on campus with my friends and still do the co-op job, which was very unusual in Ithaca because it's such a, a small town. Co-ops are, I, um, I had a co-op job as well. It, it, it taught me so much. Um, and I was so, I'm still grateful to Ford Motor Company for, for providing that opportunity and it helped pay for school. And it took me forever. I, 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 I saw your write up of your path. It looks like you went through pretty quickly and got your, you know, I won't steal your thunder, but it took me nine years to get my undergrad, but I was in the army and um, I had co-opted, and I didn't have a great start. But at the end of it all, I was, I was very happy taking my time and, and getting that real-world experience. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very eye-opening. Um, 
tough industry, you know, constantly competing against um, cheaper labor overseas. Um, so I learned an awful lot and still got to enjoy the, uh, the um, college experience. So um, around my junior year, the professors noticed what I was doing and I asked them for some help. And um, a professor, a great guy, Bill Maxwell, we all called him Max, kind of started to mentor me. And he really got me into uh, an area of um, using math for advanced production planning and scheduling, which Mm -hmm. is very complex math problems. Um, So, yeah, I started to apply and he started to help me what we were learning at at Emerson Electric, which was where I was uh, co-op. And he offered me a, um, a six-year program, which was finish up my Bachelor of Science in Engineering and during senior year, knock off the first year of the MBA program and then stay two more years for a Master of Engineering and finish the MBA. So in six years, you would get your BS, a Master of Engineering and an MBA. That's fantastic. And so that's that's start to finish. It's not six years from some point. It was the total. Instead of four for an undergrad, it was six for all of that. Exactly. That's a powerful exactly. offer. Yeah. And I, you know, we talked about finances. My parents were gracious enough to say, hey, we, we're taking care of the first four years, but then you're on your own. And he said between I, I had become a teaching assistant, he said between that money he, uh, he thought I would get a scholarship that he was uh, the chair of, and that paid for half, and then um, good summer jobs. So I kind of sat back and looked at it. I thought I wanted to go to a different business school for the experience and maybe for, uh, for um, the name, like both my brother-in-laws had done. Um, and I sat back and I said, wait a minute, you know, I can get two advanced degrees, graduate without debt. That's a, that's a good deal. Um, that's incredible. That's what I did. Um, I took off two years after year five to go to a small consulting firm and get some work experience. I didn't want to graduate with three degrees and and not more work experience. So for two years, I worked for a very small firm that did operations research consulting. Um, Again, applying those kind of things I had learned to to help DuPont with their production planning and scheduling. so, yeah, that was an interesting experience. Through that, I realized that I really liked software. I really liked computers. I had been fortunate enough to be introduced to, this will make you laugh, the TRS-80s mm-hmm. back in high school. Yeah, back in high school. And we didn't really get personal computers until my sophomore year at college. But I always kind of liked them. I, I didn't want to focus as a computer engineer or a programmer, but I always liked them. Um, and I liked software. So me I also too. realized it was always a draw for me as well. I, I I couldn't get away from it. Yeah, there's something magnetic about them to some people, and I guess I'm one of those people. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to be a business person, um, not an engineer. That was my overall goal. So um, I realized that I really liked those two years working with customers and trying to add value. I realized that I kind of liked uh, the consulting or teaching. And I'll even call it the beginning of sales because I was able to sell some add-on projects. So when I went back to finish business school, I only had one more year. Um, and a company called Microsoft came to campus. And I, I, I say what this year with a was smile. This? this would have been 1990, 1991. Wow. Okay. Yeah. They had just sold their three millionth copy of Windows. 
So um, the they whole were killing movie, it. <laughs> World had never seen a company user. like that, right? Yeah, the graphical user interface. They were taking Apple's uh, GUI graphical user interface and applying it to to DOS and the PC. So it's probably Windows three one, right? Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I remember that place. Yeah. So they came recruiting. They were they were kind of funny. They were a little bit arrogant. They they sat down and told me that they were at the second tier business schools. <laughs> so they considered Cornell a second tier. Cornell second tier, right? Yeah. yeah. And the first tier business schools, they put the people right into uh, marketing or finance, which is where most of my um, classmates were going. But they wanted to go to the second tier business schools and put people into sales for a couple years and then move them into marketing. They gave you um, a gift. Yes, yes. They were doing me a favor. They <laughs> so, were. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I actually thought that sales was a great way to go. Um, two, two phrases came to my mind. One was um, several people I admired told me at some point in your career, you didn't need to uh, make it or sell it. Um, so I took them up on that advice and they pointed out, I thought I wanted to be a CEO. They pointed out that many CEOs had spent time in sales and that it would always be valuable in your career. So um, I had to convince so you were that ambitious at that age where you said to yourself, I want to be a CEO. I, that was, that was my goal. That was my goal. Wow. Um, yeah. So I had to fool Microsoft. They, they also announced that they were only looking for the best and brightest. And I pulled some things out that told them, <laughs> hey, you know, they had put, uh, put people in the six-year program that they considered the best and brightest in Cornell undergrad. And that seemed to, uh, to sway them. Um, so, yeah, I went to Microsoft in the Philadelphia area, um, which, as I mentioned, is much more home or is home. Um, and I started working, this was the amazing part, Drew, most people tell their sales career of, you know, you're grinding it out on the phone and cold calling. And I was, at, I was at Microsoft as they were exploding and I'm calling on CIOs of fortune 500 companies. It was right out of the gate, right out of college. It's incredible. I was so green. Um, it was brutal. The first year. You couldn't really do anything wrong at Microsoft. They were just on such a roll. But I just felt like I, you know, I was getting kicked around. I was meeting with people who just were so far above me. I was working with such bright people. Um, it was a really, really tough year. So I always say to people who are thinking about sales is be prepared for a brutal first year. You're just learning so much. Um, and I yeah. just felt like I wasn't being effective. That was tough. That was really tough. I, I can just chirp in and, and add my perspective. I, I was always on the, on the engineering technical side, supporting the sales side. And I did carry a bag for a year and I, I needed to sleep like on the weekends to recover from the, the hours and the pace. It's unbelievably difficult job especially if you have a hot product and big customers. It's very, very difficult. It's, it's probably still difficult if you don't have a hot product and you're trying to break your way in there. But if you've got something that's hopping, you've got a bunch of deals on the table, boy, the stakes are high and um, very, very difficult job, very important job for companies. 
Well, yeah, the uh, the first year, even into the second year, um, really, really tough. On top of it, what I noticed at Microsoft was it was you were a small cog in a big company. It was really tough to have a voice, and part of that was just you know I didn't have a lot of experience, the immaturity, um, a lot of bright people, and it was just it was a steamroller of a company, um, great company. So I'm in the uh, I'm in the mailroom at Microsoft, and we got paid mostly in these things called options, not so much commission. And one of the SEs points out to me that our market cap had now reached 300 million. And that was as big as GM at the time. So this was like 1993, 1994. And he said, you know, we we can't go any higher. So I started to look. And uh, I left Microsoft in 1994. Not the best financial decision, Drew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There were some tough times ahead, but you had quite a run if you chose to take it. Yeah. Yeah. If you plot the stock from 1994, I think Wall Street noticed the day I left, the stock went on a run for six years um, like no one had ever seen. So um, I went to a company Sybase, which was um, had grown quite a bit in the client server area. And right after I got there, they acquired a company called Power Builder, which was one of the big uh, development platforms. That was a great 4GL. I really, that was, I thought that was a fantastic tool. Yeah. So I, I went there, the average rep was making over, I think they told me 250K, which I thought was great. Arrogantly, I thought I was better than average. Um, what I didn't realize was it was kind of the end of huge battles between Oracle and Formix and Sybase in every account. And I missed it. I got in at the tail end. I thought that the company was going to do great. I thought the power builder acquisition was smart and not much into the job, maybe six months. Uh, Gartner came out with this report talking about how Sybase had missed the boat, that the wave that companies were going into now was applications with PeopleSoft and SAP and Mm Y2K issues, and that Sybase wasn't well suited for that. Um, It didn't have row-level locking, and they were right. Um, And Oracle just ran over us. Um, Yeah, so I stayed at Sybase. I I actually moved uh, from being a rep. I was pretty successful um, in a tough territory down in Charlotte calling on education and utilities and government, state government. And I moved up to um, Philadelphia to get into management. So I became a a district manager up in the Philadelphia area. And this was all at like 27, 28 years old? Um, Yeah, I guess. Right. right. Yeah, around 30. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's a pretty young district manager, but okay. That's great. So, um, I mean, these tech companies have a way of, you know, giving young people a chance to get over their skis, which is fantastic. It's what you want. They did. I felt like at at Sybase, I really felt like I learned an incredible amount about sales. They were much more uh, typical sales driven where Microsoft, when you sold something, it took six months to go through their commission system and, and give you credit. Um, so it was felt much more like you were doing events and awareness Sybase was mm-hmm. intense selling direct to enterprises and, and actually holding that PO when it, uh, when it was issued. Um, so I really, 
I, I credit Sybase with learning an incredible amount. The experience of management, I decided after about three, four years that it really wasn't for me. But right. What I learned and how that helped the rest of my career was incredible. It just gives you such a perspective. Um, so I left. You can empathize with your manager and, and what he or she has to do to cover for you and support you and escalate and you understand why they're asking for updates in the deal. Yeah. I, yeah. It is important to have that perspective. Right? Yeah. I, yeah. I think you put good words around it. You start to really understand um, your customers better too, when they're dealing with their people um, and, and what they're going through. And since most of the people who have budget, you know, also have direct reports, um, I, it just gave me a whole nother level or insight into uh, working with customers and trying to help them. So uh, during the dot-com boom started happening, I started looking um, and a bunch of my Sybase friends went to a small CRM company and threw a whole bunch of options at me. And I thought that this was the thing to do. And I have to tell you, Drew, I don't always make the best decisions. I was there a little over a year and the whole company, great people, hard driving people, um, but we sold absolutely nothing, nothing in yeah. a year. Was it Siebel that was the tough competitor then? Exactly. Siebel and yeah. this little company called Salesforce.com. But, yeah. but you hit, you hit the nail on the head. It was when most companies were going with Siebel yeah. and people started to get skittish about working with, uh, you know, with a startup. Obviously we weren't public. So yeah. Uh, Really, really tough because I love these people that I worked with and, and just have so much respect for them. But at the same time, it was just, we just were burning through cash. So they did a huge layoff. They had talked me into going back into management by throwing more options at me. Next thing I knew about a year into it, they did a huge layoff. Um, they demoted me to a rep, which is what you know I kind of told them I really wanted to do anyway. Uh, we had to let a lot of good people go. Um, that was just really tough. I, I went through that as well. I can say at, at Oracle during that time, you know, Oracle was still doing very well, but I had to let go 50 people in, in about a six month period. And um, I'd say, you know, when it's a riff, it's easier to let go of people sometimes for me than if it's a performance issue, honestly. I don't know why, I guess I'm kind of a wimp. But uh, it, it's never easy. And uh, it, it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm glad you're going through this because sometimes I kind of feel like at this stage in my life, you know, where I'm retired and I feel pretty set, I forget how rocky it was in parts of my career. And that's what I'm hearing from you, too. I'm hearing like there was, there's rocky times. You had a family to support and, you know, um, there's just there's just times where you have to have a lot of grit and persevere and, and work your way through it and you have to have a lot of belief. But I, I think sometimes, you know, maybe this is part of the podcast for young people too. They 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 see people that have, you know, kind of gotten to the end of their career or whatnot. Say it must have been easy for them. This was not easy for you. It was uh it was a brutal year. And we were working so hard and trying so hard, but just to have no success was was really tough um 
So I, I decided to leave. I decided that, you know what, um, I don't want to rise up and be a CEO. I don't want to rise up and be in charge of sales because I just found even, you know, at first or second level sales management that I'd done at, at, at these companies, your schedule's not your own. Uh, your headaches are, are huge. Mm-hmm. And you don't have the opportunity to build relationships with customers, which is something I really enjoyed um, the same way. So I just, I, I sat back and I said, you know what, if I can be successful um, as a, uh, as a enterprise sales rep and I can be home at night, that was the life for me. So I found a company I was looking more for culture than I ever had before. I think before I was very money driven. I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to really look at the culture. Are these people that I want to be around and are they doing things I want to do? Um, I found two companies. One was EMC that wanted to bring me on, which you remember they were a juggernaut in the whole storage space. And one was, they were and paid handsomely, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and one was Symantec, which was in this new space cybersecurity. They had hired a uh, CEO, John Thompson, great guy from IBM. And I just sat back and thought about it. And I said, you know what? I, I want to work hard, but I want to be home. And it just felt like a right fit. And I'll tell you what, Drew, for every time I made a bad decision or I got unlucky, and there definitely were there, this was a good decision. Um, I got very ingrained in the culture. I liked the people. I liked the, uh, I had a couple of fantastic managers um, that I was working for, Sherry and Gigi and others along the way. Um, We hired an SC who's still my best friend. So I put together um, a a really good team or we put together a good team to work with, but I also got lucky. Um, There was two cyber events in early 2011, one called Code Red and one called Nimda. And for the first time, the nefarious characters weren't just writing graffiti on the wall. They were taking down companies' networks. And that was a sea change. Right. And then the tragic events of September 11, 9-11 happened. And Drew, it was palpable. The, the word security, I was dealing with uh, CISOs who were struggling to get budget and recognition under the CIO. And after 9-11, um, were just vaulted into the boardroom to give presentations and ask how much money do they need. The word security was now just on the front of everybody's, uh, everybody's agenda. And right place, right time. Symantec was the leader in this area. Uh, we had a about 15 products at the time. We were acquisitive. We were acquiring great companies. I was fortunate enough to, uh, there was a little credit card company in Wilmington that got bought, Wilmington, Delaware, that got bought by uh, Bank One. And we did a nice job with them. They were really smart people. We did a nice job with a company called Cigna, which does employee benefits. So I got noticed for the work that I was doing. Um, And the head of sales, he actually came out of Sybase also. And between him and the women that I mentioned earlier, they were like, look, you know, we, we want you to do important things. Um, they, they had me start selling to UPS because our CEO, John Thompson, was on their board. 
and we weren't really selling them anything. Um, I got lucky. JP Morgan Chase bought Bank One and decided that they were the smartest cybersecurity people. So handed over the keys to cybersecurity to those folks. So they had me work with JPMC. So we we built JPMC and Cigna to just be two of the company's showcases accounts. Um, JPMC. Those are, in, I'm sure, incredibly challenging accounts to satisfy. Oh, too. actually, yeah. And I was working with George because um, George was associated with Bank One. So we worked together for a couple of years. And yeah, very demanding. But it was so much fun because you'd bring in, you, you could bring in anyone in the company. I could bring in the CEO. I could bring in the head of engineering. Um, they all wanted to meet with J.P. Morgan Chase because these folks were so bright that no matter who you brought in, we were sharing our strategy, but they were they were teaching us stuff. And they, really they were shaping that. things, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. And the same thing with Cigna. Um, good friends with their CISO, uh, ex-CISO still today. We'd come in and, and he was the folks at JPMC. I had them get together with the folks at Cigna because Cigna just had some of the sharpest policies and business practices around it. But Anyway, I'm kind of babbling on. It it was a phenomenal nine year run. Um, you know, the company gave me a Porsche as a sales award for a year. <laughs> there were all kinds wow. of like just which one? Uh, 911 Carrera. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Do you still have it? No. I uh, after the no. year lease. You know, I'm I'm not a big car guy, but I probably should have okay. held on to that one. Yeah. Yeah. They gave it to me for a year and just you know it. I worked my butt off, but I had so much fun. Um, a lot of ups and downs, but many more ups. And it was just a yeah, great that, run. That's great. That's great. So after about 10 years, I started getting an itch. And my friend George was over at Salesforce.com. Everybody knows how inventive they were and at the forefront of the, uh, of the cloud application area. I was always fighting with the guys in New York on whether I was running JPMC or part of the team or not part of the team. And it just got to a point where I was like, you know, it's time to try something different. I went there to focus on JP Morgan Chase. And uh, that was interesting because soon after I hmm. got there, talk about being unlucky, a company that held their cloud data, held their cloud data for marketing purposes was breached and customer data oh. from JP Morgan Chase was out in the public for sale. Yeah. And then the monetary authority of Singapore, Maz, gave an edict to all the banks that if they wanted to continue their license, banking license in Singapore, they couldn't keep customer data in a multi-tenant architecture, which is what Salesforce is built on. So uh, it was like getting hit by Mike Tyson by a left and a right. <laughs> Those are some pretty serious objections. Oh, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm plugging away because I, I checked with the folks at JP Morgan Chase before I went there and they thought, you know, that it was a very strong possibility that they were going to go with salesforce.com. So I was working with their six business units. They were all spending an incredible amount of money on homegrown systems or on Siebel and very unhappy. So I thought I was, I honestly thought I was in the best job in the high tech world or one of them. I thought I had landed it. And within six months, it just did a complete 180 on me. I mean, cloud was a tough one for a long time. I, I um, was early in selling cloud at Microsoft and 
uh, it's it's hard for people to remember how difficult it was to sell and implement systems before they deployed them through the cloud. I mean, it was a disaster, right, for companies to go ahead and implement a package software and, and customize it and have to do the upgrades and all of that. And I think we've gone through most of that, but in those early days, it was not an easy sell. Those objections, especially for a company of the stature of J.P. Morgan Chase, I understand. I feel it. That that pain's incredible. Were you able to work through those objections? Get her done? No. Um, you know, Benioff <laughs> sat yep. down. You're not alone. Benioff sat down with Jamie Dimon. Mark Benioff, the CEO yeah. of Salesforce.com, sat down with the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, and it basically Jamie said, "I lost customer data once. I said to my customers, I'm sorry. I gave it to this company, and they lost it." I cannot do that again. I cannot say I gave your data to another company and they lost it. So he asked, would we look at putting the uh, architecture behind their firewall? To which Mark, rightfully so, said, that's just not us. That's just not our architecture. That's not how we operate. So right. I, was, I was dead in the water. I said, mm -hmm. you know, it's going to happen, but I can't tell if it's going to take two quarters two years or two lifetimes. And it started to look more like two years or two lifetimes. So I got out of there. And, you know, you know, you can look back on that. I got to say, and you got Benioff and Diamond together. And you can't do more than that. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and, and that wasn't my engineering. I, I'd like to take credit for that meeting, but um, Mark was very respected by the CIO. Um, who's a really good guy. Uh, guy Shirillo at JPMC at the time. Okay. So Guy kind of made that happen. Um, I think Guy was kind of rooting for Salesforce. I think at one point he said, I have a billion dollar budget and I've never taken more grief out of trying to stend, spend 10 million with you guys. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, hopefully an interesting story to the listeners, but uh, it, I realized that I, I, I had to change again. And Symantec was looking for somebody to run Comcast, which is right in Philadelphia. Um, if you Remember the the show Thirty Rock, Cable Town. That's, sure, uh, yeah, sure. So Philadelphia is Cable Town, the home of Comcast. Okay. And uh, I I said this would be great. I asked my SC to come back with me. It just fit. I had another great boss. I like the culture. Drew, I got to tell you, at times they had me work with J.P. Morgan Chase again, but I, we went on a nine-year run that was just phenomenal. Um, there was a great CISO at Comcast who really liked Symantec. And we took, you know, our top customers at Symantec were usually financial services like UBS or Credit Suisse, JPMC, Citibank. We, we brought Comcast to that level. They became a top five mm. customer for Symantec. Um, and we, we had more of our solutions in there and we're just... Weren't you, weren't you reselling through them as well for their... The customers, client endpoints and innovative stuff like that. Was that right? Yeah. So you're right. And I spent a little bit of time on that, but that was the, uh, the consumer side of Symantec, most known okay. by Norton. Okay. And they had made a deal, um, the consumer side, which really wasn't, I, I helped and um, was in charge of the relationship, but their job was to, uh, to sell Norton through Comcast to Comcast users. Yes. Good memory. Yeah, so that 
that just worked out really, really well. Um, I was able to, to reunite. We brought the SC back, worked for some great people. Um, once again, we were just, you know, just had really, really big years. Those years where they're presenting checks to people on stage, um, those kind of years multiple times. Um, so it was, it was really rewarding. But around age 50, I started to realize, and, and it gets back to your biking, um, that I just wanted to write some other chapters in my life. Right. And I sat back and I said in around, I was, I was around 50, around 2014. I said, you know what? Financially, we can do it if we live within our means. Um, but I've got great teammates. I've got a great customer. Um, I'd be foolish to not keep this going until the equation changes. Uh, the equation changed dramatically when, uh, when Broadcom bought the enterprise part of Symantec that I was part of in 2019. Okay. And that was, uh, that's a long winded, but hopefully somewhat interesting yeah. story of how I came to retirement. Yeah, no, I, I definitely have a, uh, a lot of follow-up questions in this area, but I, I appreciate you laying that out. Um, you know, just some, some observations. I remember, I, if I reflect back what you told me on myself, I'd say, boy, I, I, um, really got lucky with a couple of my moves and I'm thinking back to myself, like I, I went to Oracle, I didn't go to Sybase, right. And, uh, we did really well. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I didn't have, so I left Ford Motor Company to go to Oracle. I didn't, I didn't know much. I really didn't. I mean, I think, Oracle had a billion dollar market cap, but this was 93, you know, still most people hadn't heard of them. They certainly hadn't penetrated the, uh, the potential of where they're at now. What if that didn't go well? Would I have had the grit? You know, what if I had a year where I worked for a company that didn't sell anything and I worked my ass off and, um, it was a, it was a risk reflecting back on, on my career leaving Ford Motor Company. Cause that's kind of the gravy train to Detroit. You, you join an automotive company, you're at the pinnacle of the corporate world in Detroit. It's headquarters there. There's also opportunities for careers. So it was a, it was a risk. Um, but it sounds like, you know, especially with Symantec, I don't want to say just that, when there was time to harvest, when you had those decades, two different, basically decade runs, where you had a chance to really harvest and hit it and have those home runs, you harvested, and that's kind of that's kind of what um, you know. I think got you the separation where you're able to retire early is having those harvest periods. And um, I've had you know a friend who knows me pretty well reflect. He said, "Yeah, you know, Drew, you weren't a sales guy, kind of making those big numbers, but you knew how to harvest consistently." And I think I think that's true. I think I think I was able to, um, uh, you know, make good money consistently, have a simple lifestyle compared to maybe a, what I imagine the lifestyle is like on the coasts, and um, save aggressively and 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 feel good about that. But we'll we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about the money side. But you know, just just a question for you. Um, you know, I've got a couple of them. Did you did you have kind of a personal philosophy, you know, in terms of how you would, you know, build relationships um, with these executives and how you would, what you would aim for in terms of building a long-term relationship and getting business done? 
Did you have like some sort of guiding approach? Yeah, I like that. Good question. Um, it evolved over time and I've done some consulting around this since I, uh, since I retired, but, um, it's called the, I tried to crystallize it into something called the three R's, which is first you start to realize that the relationship comes first. When you're, when you're new into sales, you're thinking that the revenue comes first and it's all about making the sale. And that's fine if you're slash and burn or, you know, you're not trying to build a long-term career um, and instead just hop from hot product to hot product. So I really started to focus on the relationship first and think about that first. Where are we? Can we make it better? How do we make it better? Can they help us improve our products? Can we help them, um, you know, with our solutions? And that, that really started to change the game. And then next behind relationship was revenue. Um, you know, salespeople are rewarded very handsomely when they sell. And if you don't right. sell and Sybase was brutal about this when, when you didn't sell, you know, it, it was pretty quick, uh, pretty quick invitation to, to walk out the door. Right. Right. Same with Oracle. Yeah. And then the last, and, and this really started to, what I really started to learn about executives is much like probably you and I buy things. When we go and we buy things, one, we don't like people selling to us. We're trying to solve a problem. But two, we talk to our friends. So the other game changer for me and the last of the R's was um, referrals. I really started to figure out with my customers who they talked to, would they talk to other customers who had similar problems, and just started to be a connector um, of higher high level people, mid-level management, even you know the, the, the people with their hands on the keyboards. When you started connecting those people, it totally changed the game for me as far as sales. Um, if, you're, if you're betting your money and your career at a company on the next project, listening to the salespeople, you're getting information from them, but you're trying to figure out, is this really going to work? So one key is, I'm going to talk with other people who have done this solution. And, yeah. and two, I want to know their executives so that if the crap hits the fan, um, I know I can call anybody and everybody to help me out. Yeah. And it's great to represent a company that has, you know, good products, good vision, uh, good follow through, a good customer base. It's a privilege to be able to to work for somebody like that. And there are those moments where you have to trust when you have a customer talking to a customer, you have, you have to trust that um, it's going to work out in the end. But those are power, powerful accelerants, I'd, I'd agree. No, that, that's really cool. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, how about, so, you know, circling back. So at university, you said, I want, I wanted to get to be a CEO. That was kind of your goal. Um, and I'd say like, if you had to, you know, restart the simulation of your life a hundred times, where do where do you think you, you know, from your career standpoint, do you think you finished in the top quadrant of what your opportunities were? Do you think, how satisfied are you with, with uh, your accomplishments and, and your career? You know, that, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, I, was, I was very satisfied. Um, yeah. yeah, I 
didn't come anywhere close to meeting the goal of being a CEO. But what what I started to realize, even in first level management and second level management, is your time and your calendar is not your own. Right. Um, I have a lot of respect for what managers, directors, VPs, C level people do. Um, you are tied to an airplane. Um, the phone has to always be on. For me, it just wasn't the kind of father, husband, person I wanted to be. I wasn't happy when I was constantly on the road. I did like to, I did like to do some travel and probably traveled a third of the working days. But the executives, I, I, I admire what they do, but it just was not me. Yeah, I, I, I uh, am, I'm similar. I know my first job at Ford Motor Company, I really love my boss. He's the greatest guy, um, Bill. I, I looked at his calendar and what he did. And I'm like, even like a level two boss, like, oh, God, I don't want that. I don't want that. And I think like at the end of my career, so I, you, it's interesting because you finished up right before COVID. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked a little bit through, through COVID that really got brutal. You didn't see people. You're on these, uh, teams calls or zoom calls all day long. And, um, yeah, it's easy. It's convenient. You know, you can wake up, come down to your office, but that's, that's a brutal way to work. I think it's, it's, uh, it's not working in the minds. I don't want to be that dramatic, but it was not the rewarding uh, relationship. That's the number one R for you. It was not that kind of rewarding work. So um, it it's interesting, I guess, to kind of think about, um, you know, the the end of the career and, and what do you miss and what, what are you glad to be, uh, you know, clear of? Maybe you could share a little bit of some of your thoughts, you know, you know, this is going on five years into retirement or four years into retirement. What, what do you miss the most and what are you grateful that you no longer have to deal with? Yeah, great question. So back to the earlier part. I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough and I do, I credit both some luck and great teammates, great managers, but I was fortunate enough to be pretty consistently in, in Symantec's top 10 reps across the world. Yeah. Right. And that was, that was very lucrative. That was very satisfying, very rewarding. It definitely comes at a price. Um, the, the stress that I felt, um, and George, George put this well, I keep referring to George, George put this really well. Nobody can put more stress on me than I put on myself. Right. I really took to heart delivering and you know, at least meeting or exceeding expectations. And when somebody gave me a quota, I took that personally. You know, you can't control that number. And they say, if you get an outrageous quota, don't take it to heart. You know what? I was never good at that. I always felt that burden. So I do not miss the word quota hanging over my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was yeah, maybe one day a year where you felt like you didn't have a quota. And that was after the fiscal year ended. And that was a nice reprieve, but it lasted usually 24 hours, right? Right. Um, I held a lot of stress. Uh, and not a lot of people know that about me because I think I hit it pretty well. But my SE, my buddy Ed, um, he used to always laugh. He's like, the last week of the quarter, 
He's like, you're a machine. You don't want to talk to anybody unless it's completely, you know, moving things forward. Um, don't interrupt them. I would go into my cave or into, you know, into my mode. And I was, I was, I was holding a lot of stress. Uh, I learned how to deal with it better as my career went on, but it was always there, Drew. Yeah. Did it manifest in your health in any ways? Back to the Microsoft days, I had a really bad episode with stress. That was about a year and a half into the job. Um, and yeah, I've had to, I've had to manage it. I, I look at managing stress almost like some people have to manage alcohol is, right. you know, I'm in charge. I have to manage it. There's some things out of my control. I have to recognize that, but it absolutely, absolutely, um, took a toll mentally. And the other, the other area I always laugh about this is we all, most people walk around saying that they need to lose 10, 15, 20 pounds. I was definitely one of those people. And when I retired, yeah. I don't know if it was just more attention to health and diet, but I also think the word cortisol, you just get rid of that stress. And, uh, I was, I was a stress eater. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So it right. definitely took a toll. On that was your trigger. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely took a toll. Yeah. 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 Good for you. I appreciate you sharing it. You know, I, I, um, I didn't have that level of stress. I certainly had stress, but not to that level. And, um, I, I know I talked to George for a long time about retiring and, and you, you, you know him well, he believed strongly that he needed that stress to basically live and function. And, uh, he, he was at my daughter's wedding this past week and I can tell you, he doesn't, he doesn't have any of that stress and he's very happy and he loves it. And, um, it's a real thing. We've had a number of people, uh, you know, on the podcast kind of talk about that stress and their impact on their health, um, negative impact on their health. And I've seen it with friends of mine where they've taken big jobs that they think they needed and wanted and it ran through them like diabetes in terms of ruining their health. Um, and I've had wives of friends come to me and say, Drew, take that job. You know, this, uh, this guy can't take it anymore. And I'm like, no, I'm not jumping in front of that train. He can, <laughs> he can find something else to do. Right. But yeah, it's a real thing. And I think, you know, people should be cognizant of it. It almost comes to a question of, would it be better off working longer in a lower stress environment? I don't know if they exist out there anymore, to be honest. Um, or is it better to work a short period of time in a super intense, uh, high stress job, harvest and save? There's one other thing that, that I'll say. So um, I went on a hike with a, with a, with a guy I, I did, didn't know that well, but he invited me. So I, I came along on it and he uh, was telling me he has this mantra for his kids. He says, earn, invest, repeat. And, you know, you have to be good at earning. Um, if you aren't good at earning, you won't have enough left over from your expenses to invest, right? So that's kind of a, a key thing. And I know a fair number of people that are, they think it's almost like altruistic not to earn, it's a weird thing with young people sometimes. They think you get in a job like sales or something like that, you've sold your soul. And, you know, I don't, you know, why isn't the world more equal or this or that? They, we get in these philosophical debates and I'm like, you're just putting an obstacle to um, 
the basic necessities of life to some degree. You have to be able to earn more than you spend for a long period of time to be able to get to the point where you're at. And uh, there's nobility in that, and there's a price to be paid for that, for sure. Um, so uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, your health is, has taken such a turn. Um, let, let me switch gears a little bit and talk about the, the transition to retirement, unless there's any other, any other comments that come to mind if you talk, that you want to talk about with your career. No, um, I think maybe one, in retrospect, if I could do it all over again, I like what I did. Um, feel some, uh, pride about it. Hopefully not arrogance, but pride. Um, mm-hmm. but I think the one thing I would have coached myself on better is handling that stress. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I did get better at it during the career, but it's so easy now to look back in the rearview mirror and say, I wish I would have handled stress better. Um, so, so that just as a follow-up to that, I mean, everybody's got their, their techniques, but I know George's is to run. What what worked for you? Uh, cycling. We can talk cycling. about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, every once in a while, a cigar. Okay. I'm kind of craving one lately, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had to take at high stress times. I had to take like a, a sleeping pill if I could get my sleep. Okay. I was a lot better. If I wasn't sleeping, that's brutal. Yeah. yeah, those are the things that come to mind, Drew. Yeah. I know my brother, when he talked about his job, he had a really high stress automotive job. He's an engineer and a high workload and he couldn't sleep. He said, I just couldn't sleep. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, there's nothing that is a better, uh, form of healing than sleep in my opinion. So, um, okay. All right. Interesting. Um, Let's continue on. So uh, talking about the transition to retirement. So I'm, I'm definitely interested. You kind of set up where, hey, I could have retired at 50. It might have been a little tighter, um, but you retired a little bit later. So um, obviously there is some decision making and planning involved. Um how much thought into retirement and your plan for what you do did you put into it? And um, did you get a lot of outside advice in terms of your readiness or was it kind of more instinctual? Right. Um, Let's talk about the emotional side, then the financial side, maybe. Okay, sure. So the emotional side, I, I was just kind of sitting back, you know, and I'd reflect and I'd say, you know, there's just, life is huge and there's so much outside the high tech sales world. And do I want to continue this chapter and just make it longer and longer? It's, it's lucrative. I like the people I'm working with. Yeah. You know, I'm handling the stress. We talked about stress, but it was a great experience. Do I want to continue that chapter or do I want to venture out and just write brand new chapters in in this book? My parents both passed away in the fall winter of 2014. And that really kind of makes you reflect that, hey, you know, our, our time is limited. And yeah, do I want, I had a 30-year career in high-tech sales. Do I want a 40-year career? And I started to kind of gel on the answer of, I think I really want to try some different things and just write some different chapters. So emotionally, that's where I was around age 50. Um, so around 2015, um, 
And I, 2016, my brother-in-law who had cycled across the US and something I wanted to do, he said, I'm going to do it across Europe with another friend of mine. And I was fortunate enough to be working on a, a monster deal that really helped the company. And I sat down with the head of sales and said, uh, uh, Johnny Rock, I said, this is really important to me. I have a chance to cycle across Europe. It'll take about six weeks. It's really important to me, which was a euphemism. I had made my mind up that I was either going to resign and go do this or they were going to let me do it. And I think he kind of picked up on that, but he's a, a great guy. And he said, just go do it. He said, you know, you got to keep stirring the soup at night, stay connected, do the emails, rely on the team. But this this deal was clearly a a very big one for Symantec. And there wasn't going to be a lot of selling work to do after it with my customer. So it was very opportune. Um, It sounds like you were given kind of a... um a side deal uh, sabbatical. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's a great way to put it. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So for three weeks, I did stay connected. Then I lost my phone in the middle of Hungary um, across this trip. <laughs> and then I couldn't stay connected. And my, my SE I could barely stay connected. My SE, Ed, and other people just filled the gap. But there wasn't, there wasn't a, a huge amount of work to do. Um, Okay. And you said that was 2016? That was 2016. And that just gave me- And then you retired 2019. So it did give you the energy to go further. It gave me the energy and it also let me know what I want to do in retirement. Um, I love Mm. to travel. I love to cycle. Uh, You put your stuff on the back of the bike and you can just go anywhere. Uh, And that was really a lot of fun. So that's kind of the emotional side. Um, and then again, I, I mentioned this before, but when Broadcom bought Symantec, which is completely different culture, completely different, you know, their 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 ceiling for compensation was my floor. Their attitude toward customers was, this is what we got, buy it, and here are our terms, which was not the Symantec way. Um, you know, right. they're a chip company who I think got into cybersecurity to make the financials look better, but I don't know if they were genuinely committed to to cybersecurity, which I loved. I felt like I, for the first time in my sales career, I felt like I was selling something that was really, really important and helping people against bad people. It, 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 had a, it had a nice layer to it. And with that, we're a wrap on Todd's backstory and his transition into retirement. I want to thank Todd for participating and sharing his story. It's a very generous thing to do, to share your, your background about your career and your thoughts And hopefully it's helpful to those of you out there listening. As always, if you have any feedback for me, I'd always love to hear it. Please send me an email at storiesfromretirement.com.